Hi, welcome to War Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Paul LaDusser. Paul is an Orthodox theologian and a writer living in Quebec in Canada. He teaches theology and spirituality in the Orthodox Theology Programs at Trinity College in the University of Toronto and at the Montreal Institute of Orthodox Theology. He's affiliated with the Université Laval. He's written and edited several excellent books and articles on Orthodoxy and will focus mainly on his brilliant book, Modern Orthodox Theology, today. So just um, then to begin with this book, Paul, can you tell us what brought it about and what do you hope that readers will then gain from it? Well, thank you for taking the, the time to do this uh, interview. I, I will enjoy speaking about my book. <laughs> uh, well, what brought the book about basically was, uh, was my teaching activity. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, I teach uh, in Orthodox uh, theology programs, uh, both in Toronto and in Montreal. And one of the courses that I've been giving for the past uh, 10 years or so is on modern Orthodox theology. So in preparing for those courses, my, my course notes, um, after giving the course a number of times, I said, oh, I think this might be possible to turn into a, a full-scale book. Uh, so that was really the, the origin of it, were my, my course notes. But to go from course notes uh, to a book is a lot of work. <laughs> Uh, a professor speaking in front of the classroom uh, can get away with a lot of stuff uh, that you can't get away with uh, when it's printed uh, and, uh, and sort of published. Uh, so it has to be a lot more precise. And of course, uh, with a lot more references and, and sort of detailed exposition of arguments. Uh, so it took uh, a good three years uh, from the time I first started working on the manuscript and it kept growing and growing and growing uh, to the, the, the final book. So what I hope uh, readers will get out of the book uh, is, is really to have an overview of the full range of uh, Orthodox theology uh, in modern times. Now, you know, modern in an Orthodox context is a very fluid uh, concept um, for uh, some Orthodox, uh, anything after the fourth century can be considered uh, or modern, uh, but uh, more typically uh, modern uh, would be taken to be, for example, from uh, the fall of Constantinople in 1453. That's not a usual definition of, uh, of modern, but uh, it really, that, that event inaugurated uh, quite a, a change uh, in the Orthodox uh, ethos and, and history. So uh, the modern here really covers the period actually just prior to that, just uh, the century of the 14th century of St. Gregory Palamas is summarized. And then I really go on from uh, the fall of Constantinople. But the, the focus of the book really is uh, from the mid 19th century up to the present. Uh, that's the sort of hardcore of the book. So we're really covering a century and a half. So I, I, my aim was to give readers an overview of the richness uh, of Orthodox theology during this period, uh, both in, in terms of the historical context uh, and in terms of specific uh, key issues. Uh, so that's what I hope that people will uh, get out of the book. Uh, and then with numerous references, uh, not only in the footnotes, but there's a very uh, detailed uh, bibliography uh, divided by, by chapter, by sort of specific period in time or uh, geographic area or the issues that it's possible to follow up on uh, specific uh, themes that might be of interest to particular readers. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Paul. That's fantastic. And then um, I really found it most helpful and a wonderful compliment in many ways to other fantastic books by um, Father Louth, who's written Modern Orthodox Thinkers and famously um, Metropolitan Callistos Wars, The Orthodox Church. So then how would you compare your book with some of those? Well, uh, first of all, I'll talk about the Metropolitan Callistos Wares book, The Orthodox Church. It, it is truly a, a modern classic of uh, orthodoxy, uh, first published in 1963. It's now in its uh, third edition. Uh, it has two basic uh, sections, uh, first a historical one, and then a second one dealing with uh, different aspects of faith and worship. 
I consider it to be a kind of a one book overview of orthodoxy, and it's hard to beat. There is nothing else like it. Uh, so uh, it contains uh, admirable summaries of many aspects of the orthodox tradition, uh, both ancient and modern. So it's uh, it, it really is uh, said it's it's kind of a, a, a one book encyclopedia presentation of orthodoxy. Uh, Father Andrew Louth's uh, a book on um, uh, modern orthodox thinkers, as the title suggests, really focuses on individuals, uh, and the chapters basically are this theologian and then another one and then another one. So it, it focuses on uh, key uh, modern uh, theologians and spiritual figures. Uh, again, there are uh, excellent overviews of key aspects of the theologies of the individuals covered. Um, but what is a little bit difficult uh, in, in the book, and, and the book just isn't set up that way, it's difficult to see what broad trends are and interrelationships among the different uh, theologians and, and the theologies that they represent. So my perspective uh, was to uh, look at uh, modern Orthodox theology, uh, again, as uh, in Kalisdorf Ware's book, uh, in two perspectives. The first one uh, is more a historical perspective, but here I don't start from day one, as, as, as he does. As I said, I focus on, on the modern period with uh, a sort of a very quick overview of the period from the 15th to, to the mid 19th century, and then focusing, as I said, uh, especially uh, on the, the mid 19th century to the present. So here I look at, uh, yes, individual uh, personalities, but in their geographic and historical contexts, rather than sort of detached. Um, and then in part two, uh, I looked at uh, specific uh, themes and conflicts in modern Orthodox theology, uh, focusing on uh, eight uh, issues that, in my opinion, are the key issues that, that, that arose uh, in modern times uh, in Orthodoxy, and, and focusing very much on, uh, in effect, uh, interaction or conflict among theologians, among ideas, because uh, orthodox uh, theology is not uh, limited to sort of a one-track kind of thing. There, there are there's a very broad range of, of approaches, and, and sometimes there is overt conflict uh, among theologians. Sometimes it's more uh, subtle. So I've tried to focus on uh, said themes and, and conflicts uh, to to show the sort of broad range of orthodox thinking on a wide range of issues. And then the final part of the book uh, called uh, Assessments and Conclusions um, uh, said is an attempt to sort of draw things together and to highlight uh, what are in effect contemporary trends uh, in uh, orthodox uh, thinking. So the book doesn't hide uh, warts. There are problems uh, in uh, orthodox theology. Uh, but what I try to do is, is to draw out the thinking of, of uh, the individuals uh, set in their historical and in some cases even social context uh, and to relate these both to earlier patristic thinking and to the thinking of uh, other uh, orthodox theologians uh, in, in the contemporary scene. Hmm. Thank you so much, Paul. That's fantastic. And then um, if we might move to, to one of those, then I want to ask you a little bit about the Russian religious renaissance then, and what was central to the Russian religious renaissance and the new religious consciousness, as you describe? Well, I'll discuss those uh, themes uh, sequentially, one after another, although I'll, I'll draw what the relationship is between them. The uh, Russian religious renaissance was a very broad uh, philosophical and, and theological and even literary and cultural movement uh, in late imperial Russia, uh, roughly from the mid-19th century up to the Russian Revolution in 1917. And in fact, one can certainly trace the origins of modern Orthodox theology uh, to a group of uh, Russian thinkers called the Slavophiles in the mid-19th century. Uh, they were really the first to uh, come up with uh, notions and approaches to theology 
which really marked uh, the modern age, um, sort of breaking with uh, more traditional uh, approaches to theology that have preceding them, preceded them. So the Russian religious renaissance was a bit later than it was really towards the end of the 19th century and again up to the Russian Revolution. After the revolution, it was not possible to carry on within uh, the Soviet Union itself, and most of the key uh, personalities uh, then moved to, to, to the West, uh, particularly to uh, France. So what the Russian Revolution, uh, the um, uh, Russian religious renaissance was, was essentially a, a Christian response to non-Christian and even anti-Christian philosophies, uh, notably Marxism, uh, which were then popular among the Russian intelligentsia. And they revolved around the central issue of uh, what is the future of Russia? Because the, the imperial system uh, clearly by the end of the 19th century in Russia was, uh, was decaying. It was outmoded as an uh, aristocratic, uh, autocratic uh, system. Uh, and it, it needed to modernize for Russia to survive. So that was the key question. What is the future of Russia? So the re Russian religious renaissance was uh, marked not only in uh, theology and philosophy, but uh, also in, in literature, uh, in poetry, in culture in general. And it became known in the world of uh, letters, of, of literature, as the silver age of Russian uh, culture. Uh, I said up up to uh, the Russian Revolution. What was uh, perhaps very striking about the Russian religious renaissance is that almost all of the leaders of this movement uh, were not clergy, but they were laypersons uh, who were concerned about uh, Christianity, the future of Christianity in Russia in particular, uh, but also about uh, how the church uh, should adapt to uh, the modern world. Uh, the official Russian Orthodox Church at the time was uh, greatly bound up with the Russian uh, monarchy and with the entire imperial system. And it was really uh, incapable of responding to the, the intellectual and, and social ferment uh, in Russian society at the time. So, what you refer to as the new religious consciousness was, was really kind of a subgroup within the broader movement of uh, this religious renaissance. And it was composed of uh, persons who were perhaps the most distant from uh, historical uh, orthodoxy. Uh, yes, they were mostly Christian, but also attracted by uh, Oriental religions, especially Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, and also inclined towards uh, various forms of uh, esotericism, uh, esoteric uh, forms of, of religion. Uh, so, so they are within the movement, but uh, sort of a, a little bit on the, the fringes in comparison with the main philosophers and, and theologians who were uh, decidedly Christian and, uh, and Orthodox. Um, this uh, movement, the new religious consciousness was uh, in effect a a kind of a precursor of the late 20th century New Age movement. And in fact, some of the same uh, religious leanings can be found uh, among the members of the uh, New Religious Consciousness and, and the New Age movement, particularly interest in our Oriental religions and, and aspects of uh, esoteric uh, religious experiences and, and, and thought. Mm. Thank you so much, Paul. And then um, if we might move next to another fascinating emphasis in your book and within the history is on Sophia. So I want to ask you a little bit about what is Sophia. I know there's a reluctance for many people to define Sophia, uh, broadly speaking, then, and why does it and did it spark, spark such controversy then? Well, uh, you, yes, your reference to controversies is certainly correct because <laughs> uh, certainly I, I consider, and I think most Orthodox would consider that uh, the controversy over uh, Sophia or divine wisdom is the most uh, important uh, area of conflict in uh, modern Orthodox thought, uh, encompassing both uh, philosophy and, and theology. So uh, briefly, 
stated, though, Sophia is the, the theology of divine wisdom, uh, also referred to as sophiology. The essential idea of, of divine wisdom is to try to describe how God exists in relation to the world, how God reveals himself or manifests himself in creation. So it's really uh, the age-old problem of how God can relate to do something that is not God outside himself, uh, out of creation. So sophiology then attempts to uh, unite God and creation uh, in a single philosophical theological vision, rather than a more traditional approach of, of seeing an absolute difference or an impassable gulf between God on one hand and creation on the other hand. Uh, in orthodoxy, sophiology has its origins in the thinking of the late 19th century Russian philosopher uh, Vladimir Soloviev. Uh, he was the first to popularize the notion of Sophia, uh, which he actually got himself uh, from uh, German philosophy. Uh, and then the idea was then picked up and expanded upon by uh, some of his followers, especially uh, Father Pavel Florensky. And um, in particular, uh, Father Sergius Bulgakov. Uh, Sergius Bulgakov was unquestionably the, the greatest Orthodox uh, theologian of the first half of the 20th century. And I, I say that quite deliberately. And I think <laughs> later on in the interview, we'll come back to the discussion of why I say he was the, the greatest Orthodox theologian of the first half of the 20th century. So Bulgakov developed a Sophia or divine wisdom into an all-encompassing uh, theological perspective, uh, which uh, raised many problems. Uh, there are two basic ones that uh, critics uh, focus on uh, who, who look at uh, this uh, philosophy. Uh, the first is that early versions of uh, sophiology, particularly in uh, Soloviev and uh, Father Pavel Florensky, is that there was a tendency to treat divine wisdom as though it was a sort of uh, fourth divine person after the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly this notion of a fourth divine person uh, is unacceptable uh, in Christian theology, not only Orthodox theology, but Christian theology in general. Uh, so that kind of language, uh, even if it was not fully spelled out, um, Sergius Bulgakov in particular realized that this was highly problematic, and he was uh, quite clear to sort of uh, extract and delete this entirely from his thinking on divine Sophia. Um, even though at times when we read about divine Sophia, it's not clear whether it's it's a personal principle or, or some kind of abstract notion. So the second line of, of uh, critique, uh, according to uh, those who don't like this, this, this approach at all, is that uh, the theology of divine wisdom or sophiology uh, tends to blur, if not uh, eradicate, uh, the distinction between God and creation. And this opens the door to some kind of pantheism, uh, considering that the world or the cosmos uh, itself is divine. And going further in, in pantheism, uh, that God has no existence uh, outside, outside the world, outside the cosmos. Now, none of the uh, orthodox exponents uh, ever went that far, but the critics felt that this kind of blurring of the distinction between God and the world uh, opens the door to uh, pantheism. Uh, Bulgakov himself was very well aware of this criticism and explicitly uh, denied that his thinking was uh, pantheism. Uh, he used uh, the term uh, panentheism uh, now, he didn't invent uh, the term. It's a philosophical notion uh, that, in effect, says God and in the world or the world in God. And the whole question then resolves, uh, what does the word in uh, mean? But basically, for Bulgakov and, and others who, who explicitly adhere to uh, panentheism, uh, 
it this uh, philosophical approach uh, transposed into orthodox theology maintains the distinction between uh, God and the world, but at the same time uh, indicates that there is a very close interrelationship. And that's the notion of the, the in, panentheism. So it's, it's the, the Greek word en for, for, for in. So this is how one of the ways in which Bulgakov uh, defended himself against uh, his, his, his critiques. Um, now, recent uh, decades, uh, well, just to go back a little bit, I won't go into this in too much detail, but th this whole controversy blew up uh, in the mid-1930s. Uh, when Bulgakov in particular was uh, criticized by various factions within the Russian Orthodox uh, Church community in, in, in exile um, for I said the reasons that I, I, I said. And so there was a whole sort of back and forth. And uh, in the end, uh, his own uh, jurisdiction, uh, Orthodox Church jurisdiction, decided that uh, his teaching was was not heretical, uh, but uh, he was asked not actually to teach this at the Saint Sergius Institute uh, in Paris, the Orthodox Theological Institute, where he was a professor of dogmatic theology. So recent decades have uh, witnessed a, a growing interest in uh, the theology of Bulgakov, uh, despite its complexity, um, because it's, it's possible to sort of look at the sociology controversy as a sort of one aspect, but then sort of look at the depth of, of his theology uh, across a very broad range of, of, of issues. Uh, and personally, I, I think, uh, yes, he was certainly the most uh, influential and powerful uh, Orthodox theologian of the first half of the 20th century, but overall, he was probably the most profound Orthodox theologian uh, of modern times, perhaps not the most influential, we'll, we'll come to that <laughs> in subsequent questions, but the most profound. And I think this is what is being discovered today uh, as a result of the uh, translation into English uh, of his writings, because he wrote exclusively in Russian. And it's only in the last two decades that his major works uh, and a lot of his minor works as well have uh, been made uh, published in, in English translation. And this has sort of broadened the, the audience, obviously, uh, beyond the specialists who could read the Russian, uh, much well beyond uh, orthodoxy. And there's a lot of interest in Bulgakov uh, in uh, Catholic and Protestant and Anglican circles uh, now, much more than would have been the case two or three decades ago. Mm. Thank you, Paul. And then, um, as you sort of hint at there, there are these other strands which were incredibly influential, and I would love to look at some of those. And so could you tell us a little bit about, uh, say, neopatristic theology and uh, polymite theology as they've come down to us then? Well, I, I kind of set the scene uh, a little bit uh, <laughs> there when I was talking about the Russian religious renaissance and, and the discussion we just had on uh, sophiology. Um, the neopatristic uh, theology uh, arose in the mid 20th century. So it was sort of historically, chronologically followed on uh, the early part of the Russian religious Renaissance. Uh, and it really was a reaction to uh, two uh, different types of theology, uh, which were then uh, dominant uh, in orthodoxy. Uh, the first was and I haven't mentioned this so far, but it's, perhaps I, I hinted at it a little bit. Uh, the first was a very rigid formal theology known as school or academic theology. Uh, this was the type of theology that was taught in seminaries and university faculties of theology uh, in Orthodox countries. Uh, it was a type of theology very much influenced by Western scholastic theology uh, in terms of its structure and even uh, the themes that it, it, it considered, uh, and in some cases uh, opened the door to the introduction of uh, Western theological notions uh, into orthodoxy. Uh, so that was sort of one type of theology, very dominant, as I said, in the theological educational systems in orthodox countries, such as Russia, Greece, uh, Romania, Serbia, etc. 
The second type of, of theology that neopatristic theology was uh, developed in reaction to uh, was what we've just been uh, discussing. Uh, the, the very speculative theology uh, characteristic of the uh, Russian uh, religious renaissance, uh, which on the one hand had the objective of, of trying to make Orthodox theology more relevant to modern problems, but on the other hand, in the eyes of its uh, critics, uh, was straying too far from the wellsprings of uh, Orthodox tradition and thought. So what neopatristic theology uh, thought, sought, set out to do was to return Orthodox theology uh, to its principal sources, being mainly scripture uh, and the early fathers of the church, and hence the patristic in, in the name given to, to this uh, approach to theology. Uh, the most uh, vocal exponent uh, of neopatristic theology was uh, Father George Florovsky, uh, who preferred to refer to his theological approach as neopatristic synthesis. Uh, my own preference is for neopatristic theology because there are problems with the idea of, of a synthesis. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a concept that comes from uh, Greek thought and, and Hegel. Uh, another very well-known uh, uh, early leading representative of neopatristic theology was uh, Vladimir uh, Lasky, uh, exemplified especially in, in his well-known book, uh, The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. So the uh, Florovsky and, and, and Lasky and their successors uh, really dominated uh, Orthodox theology in the second half of the 20th century and, and well into uh, the early 20th century with this sort of return to uh, the, the fathers in particular as a basic uh, source and inspiration uh, for Orthodox theology. So uh, Palamite theology that you mentioned, uh, the, the sort of modern version of Palamite theology is usually referred to as Neo-Palamism. Uh, was really a part of this return to the fathers, but followed a, a slightly uh, separate uh, track or, or development of its own. Uh, Neopalamism entailed a return to the, the theology elaborated by St. Gregory Palamas in the 14th century uh, concerning the divine energies, uh, and in particular, the distinction between the divine essence and the divine energies. So in this uh, theology of St. Gregory Palamas, who was basing himself on uh, earlier patristic thinking, particularly the Cappadocian fathers of the fourth century, uh, God in himself or the divine essence and sort of technical philosophical and theological terms uh, is beyond uh, human uh, comprehension. Um, it, the divine essence is unknowable. Uh, this is actually a, a theme which occurs explicitly in, in prayers of the Divine Liturgy of, of St. John Chrysostom. Most people don't recognize this, but uh, they, they, this uh, uh, aspect of the unknowability or the apophatic, use the technical term, uh, nature of, of uh, divine existence uh, so it does occur in, in some of the prayers of uh, the Divine Liturgy. So you have the divine essence, and then on the other hand, God makes himself known or reveals himself or manifests himself in creation through the divine energies, which are God's presence in creation. And this presence uh, takes uh, two basic forms. Uh, one is referred to as natural re revelation, uh, God's presence uh, in creation and in, in nature, uh, and uh, more explicit um, uh, revelation as we know it, uh, God revealing himself uh, through sacred writers uh, as contained in scripture in the Bible as, as we know it. Uh, so it's possible then for humans to know and experience God through uh, God's uh, um, energies, uh, but not uh, his, his, his essence. Uh, and this sort of a, a sideline here is, is actually the basis 
for Orthodox spirituality. Um, so the Orthodox Church actually approved uh, this theology of St. Gregory Palamas in the 14th century, but the theology became uh, obscured and in effect uh, lost uh, in the Orthodox tradition after the fall of Constantinople to, to the Turks in, in 1453. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that it kind of vanished from the Orthodox uh, thinking and for a number of centuries uh, was because this theology does not feature in Western theology. Uh, and in fact, uh, Western the theologians, particularly uh, Catholics, uh, were prone to criticize uh, this theology of St. Gregory Palamas and even to consider that the theology was uh, heretical. So it, it kind of vanished. Uh, but beginning in uh, the late 1920s, uh, in among Orthodox theologians in the West, uh, there was a movement to restore uh, Palamite uh, theology to its rightful place in, in Orthodox thought. And sort of looking at this now, nearly a century later, uh, this uh, movement was uh, largely successful uh, within the context of the overall context of uh, neopatristic theology, as, as we discussed a little bit earlier. So Palamite theology can be seen as, in effect, a more patristically based theology, addressing the same problems that we were discussing earlier as, as divine wisdom, how God relates to the world. And this is the reason that uh, I examined these approaches to God and creation, uh, the title of uh, chapter nine in my book. I, I, I discussed these and several other uh, approaches, uh, modern approaches to uh, God and creation in, in a single thematic chapter, because they are very closely uh, interrelated. They're dealing with the same problematic, but with different uh, ideas and different uh, words and sometimes different historical uh, foundations. Mm, wonderful. Thank you, Paul. And then um, another wonderful element of your work that I found most helpful, most insightful, was how you show how these ideas have trickled down, as it were, if I'm going to put it that way, so that there's good versions of a neo synthesis theology and um, bad versions. And you, you look at uh, more open uh, approaches like for, uh, Metropolitan Killis as well, who you mentioned, and then more closed fundamentalist type understanding. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that restoration of patristic thought, what it has looked like, what it could look like, or what it maybe should look like even. <laughs> yes, well, this is this is really the, the sort of said, key theme of Orthodox theology in, in the second half of the 20th century and, and up to the present uh, up to the present time. Uh, and, and here we really have to look to uh, Father George Florovsky because uh, he made this sort of his uh, campaign, his theological campaign, if you want to put it that way, uh, from about the mid 1930s onwards. And he was really the only one uh, who, who tried to explain uh, methodologically what he was doing. Uh, he wasn't always successful. <laughs> uh, in particular, he, he coined the expression, uh, the patristic mind. Swarovski um, advocated uh, following uh, the fathers, uh, but at the same time, he was very conscious of the risk of simply repeating what the fathers said. The fathers wrote many centuries ago uh, in the social and economic and theological uh, context of, of their times. Uh, and it's not always uh, evident uh, how to relate that to our contemporary situation, which is, is, so, is so different uh, in terms of uh, society and culture and what have you. So Ferovsky considered that it was necessary to address modern problems, uh, but by inspired by the thinking of the early fathers. Uh, and this is what he referred to as acquiring the patristic mind. Now he never really defined what, what he meant by this, um, but if we go through his writings uh, carefully, uh, we can identify a number of key elements that constitute uh, the patristic mind uh, as Forosky saw it. 
some of these elements uh, have to say are, are controversial, but they are they are a part of, of, of his thinking on uh, what constitutes the patristic mind. Uh, the first is the scripture as the foundation of all theology. So fairly uh, evident, but uh, some tendency in, in some branches of, of, of theology to place more emphasis on philosophical foundations. But Frosca is very keen, as the fathers were, to ground all theology in scripture. The second important principle, in effect, flowing from this is that Christ is the center of theological reflection. Uh, Father George Florosky is known for a very strong Christological focus and concentration in, in his writings. So all theology, theology has to relate uh, to, to, to Christ, to the incarnation, to uh, Christ's teachings, to passion, death, resurrection. A fourth, a third principle is a, a very strong historical awareness. Uh, this is both a history in the sense of the history of salvation uh, as revealed in scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and the history of the church. Uh, in his studies in university, Florovsky uh, was very strongly oriented towards, uh, towards history. So he, he has this historical uh, mind. Uh, a fourth uh, principle is uh, we call a Catholic consciousness. Uh, now here Catholic is used in the Greek sense, uh, Catholicos, uh, uh, meaning not referring to the Roman Catholic church at all, but referring to the universality of uh, Christian teaching. Uh, so it's this sort of universal notion that uh, a theology has to encompass all of existence, and this is reflected in, uh, in Christian theology. So this is what he meant by a Catholic uh, consciousness, and more specifically, doing theology in the context of the church, not sort of a, as, a, as a sort of outside independent uh, discipline. Uh, a fifth principle, and this is probably the most uh, controversial one, is fidelity to the uh, Hellenistic Byzantine uh, theological tradition. Uh, for uh, Florovsky, um, theology was expressed in Greek by the ancient Greek fathers. Uh, and he uh, had little to say and little, attached little importance to uh, other sources within Christianity, even early Christianity, uh, whether it be Syriac or uh, in more modern times, Russian uh, theology or what have you. For him, theology was basically Greek. And when it was pointed out to him that one of his favorite patristic uh, authors was in fact St. Augustine. <laughs> Uh, and I think this took him aback, and it's quite true. When, when he reads Florovsky, he quotes Augustine a lot, probably more than any other individual father. And his answer was, well, Augustine was basically a Greek father. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, this, this is probably uh, the one that has caused uh, the most uh, difficulty to uh, Florovsky's critics, because he has critics, uh, because it seems to limit uh, theology to, I said, the, the Hellenistic uh, Byzantine theological tradition and not take adequate account of other strands, uh, Coptic, uh, Syriac, uh, uh, Armenian, uh, and, and, and even modern uh, theology. Uh, a sixth, which I mentioned earlier, is a focus on contemporary issues and, and, and problems, not sort of always dealing with the, the issues of the fourth century or the fifth century, the sixth century. And the final aspect is the integration of theology with the prayer and sacramental life of, of the church. Flowski would point out that the fathers were holy men of old. They were not simply theologians in the modern academic sense. And this, this is very much in, in the Orthodox tradition, but 
theology is first and, and foremost the experience of God. It's not reflection or thinking about God. It's the experience of God. And because of the structure of universities and academic disciplines and what have you, we tend to think of theology as the study of God. But uh, in the ancient church, it wasn't. It was the experience of God. Uh, and hence, we have St. John the theologian uh, known for uh, his uh, deep experience of God, but also his profound reflections uh, from based on, on his experience of God. Mm. Thank you. That's most important. Thank you, Paul. And um, <clears throat> with all that in mind, then, as here we are in the internet age, as it were, and there is that tendency to make things abstract, and we sort of live these abstract lives as avatars and screens and everything like that. I wanted to ask then, um, in light of all that, how might one then acquire a more patristic mind? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've, I think I've outlined the sort of elements mm -hmm. uh, of uh, that, that go into that. I think in terms of sort of the practical uh, acquisition uh, of this, this kind of uh, reflection is, is really to, to, to read the fathers. Uh, there are much of the patristic works, uh, particularly the Greek uh, fathers of the church, uh, are available in, in good translations now uh, in English, uh, which is not always always the case. Uh, up until the late 19th century, there was hardly any patristic literature, whether Latin or Greek, available uh, in modern Western uh, languages. So it was necessary to read the actual Latin or Greek, uh, which uh, limited this, the scope of, of who could have access to, to these writings, but it was assumed that any literate person uh, up to the early 20th century and even up to the middle of the 20th century, we would be able to read Latin and Greek. Well, the first uh, English translations uh, of the fathers were made available in the late 19th century um, uh, in English translations, which today uh, are very stilted. The language is, is extremely formal and sometimes it's even hard to follow the, the, uh, the thinking because uh, the, the presentation of the ideas because the language is, is so formal. It's really uh, sort of high level uh, philosophical, theological language of, of the Victorian era. But fortunately in the last 50 years, uh, many of the major works have now been retranslated into more readable uh, English. Um, and I would uh, recommend, for example, the, uh, the series of, of works uh, published by uh, St. Vladimir's uh, Theological Seminary Press, uh, known as the Popular Patristic Series. I think there are at least 50 or 60 of these, and there are still more coming out every year. Uh, these are, are very uh, approachable, very readable uh, translations that cover the most important uh, patristic works. So my suggestion would be to read those, uh, but also to, to, to read some of the great uh, classics uh, of uh, neopatristic theology to sort of see what it looks like in, in particular. And what I, I recommend the most is uh, actually a book I mentioned earlier, Vladimir Lovsky's The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. This is uh, certainly a great classic of a modern orthodox theology. It's, to me, it is the, the most important single book uh, of uh, orthodox theology in modern times. It's not easy reading, it's very dense, uh, but uh, I, anybody tackling it, I suggest uh, think that you will need to go through it several times to, to grasp it because he does sort of cover the waterfront uh, a lot of patristic uh, citations and references, and he deals with issues in depth. Uh, but it's very short. It's only a couple of hundred pages. Uh, but that would certainly be a, a very good uh, approach uh, to, to looking at, instead of one of the, one of the great classics, in fact, the greatest classic, I think, of modern uh, Orthodox theology.
Mm, excellent. Thank you, Paul. And then I think uh, Jonathan Pajot often ends up saying they actually go to church. And actually, uh, we often uh, talk about reading so much that we forget to actually go to the liturgy, which is obviously true. <laughs> well, this this is in, in the context of a uh, slightly different context. Oh, yeah. uh, it's The context here is, is uh, somebody who wants to know about orthodoxy. Now, our previous discussion was really sort of on how does one acquire the patristic mind? Well, that's already sort of an opening, but what is the best way to, to, to learn about orthodoxy? And here I would agree with Jonathan Pajot. Yes, uh, go to a liturgy. And, and this, is, this is not new. Uh, this has been said for, for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, the first uh, experience of this, the first recorded historical experience, uh, goes back to uh, the the 10th century, if you can believe it, uh, when the then uh, Tsar of, of Russia, uh, Russia at that time, of course, was, was pagan. This was prior to Christianity. Uh, he sent emissaries uh, to the West, including what was then the Byzantine Empire, uh, to learn about what the religious beliefs were. And when the emissaries uh, reached uh, Constantinople, uh, they attended the liturgy in Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Divine Wisdom, by the way, uh, and were so impressed with uh, what they saw is that they wrote in their report, we would call it a report today, uh, that it seemed as if they were already uh, in paradise, in heaven. Uh, the liturgy was, was so beautiful and solemn and everything. So that was their first experience. And they recommended, in effect, that uh, the Tsar and his people uh, adopt uh, Orthodox Christianity as the religion of the Russian people. And that was the, actually the origin of uh, Christianity in Russian. To give a more modern experience, sorry for going on a little bit about this, um, the modern Orthodox theologian, Elizabeth Versichel, um, so she was a French a theologian, uh, initially a Protestant, Lutheran, um, and uh, actually uh, um, became uh, initially trained in uh, Protestant uh, theology in, in Strasbourg in France. Uh, and in the faculty of theology where she was a student, there were a few Orthodox, Russian Orthodox there uh, who had been given scholarships. Uh, and they invited her to uh, go to Paris to attend the uh, Paschal liturgy, the Easter liturgy, in uh, the Saint Sergius Church, where guess who? Father Sergius Bulgakov uh, was the priest, uh, and so she went along, and uh, that was her introduction. Apart from casual discussions with the Russian students, that was her introduction to Orthodoxy, was attending the Paschal liturgy. And she was so impressed uh, that she pursued and uh, within a year or so uh, asked to be received into the Orthodox Church. So that's another example of, you know, experiencing Orthodoxy, go to the liturgy. Mm. Sorry to God. Thank you, Paul. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Um, another thing that Jonathan Pajot mentions, um, which I think is fantastic, going back to people like St. Maxus the Confessor, is the importance of the Logi of things. So I want to ask you a little bit about that, if I might, Paul. So what's the importance of the Logi of things, and how might we contemplate God then in creation without making it an idol, sort of building upon what you're saying previously? Yeah, this, this very much uh, flows on to what I was talking about earlier about how God relates to creation and uh, palimism, uh, the essence, energies, distinction. So the expression, uh, the logoi, now there's a little bit of, of Greek here. Uh, logoi is the plural of logos. So logos is a kind of a, a bit of a universal Greek word that can have many different meanings. Uh, it's essential meaning it can be a word, an idea, a thought. We also, uh, use it in a Christian context uh, to refer to the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Logos of God. And this comes from, uh, of course, the uh, evangel, uh, uh, the Gospel of St. John, uh, where he refers in the beginning was the Logos, which he picked up from, from Greek philosophy. 
So the logoi of things, uh, as you point out, is associated mainly with St. Maximus the Confessor in the sixth century. Uh, Maximus uh, taught that all things are infused with a, a divine principle, which corresponds with God's presence and intention for that thing. So in this way, he was able to uh, connect creation with their logoi to the divine logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity, through whom God created the universe. So the logos, or the logoi of things, uh, draw it, draw things to achieve their divinely ordained purpose. And Christ, as the logos of God, is both the source uh, of the logoi of things and their ultimate fulfillment uh, in a kind of a, a cosmic uh, theosis. So the universe is, is thus imbued uh, with the divine presence. So the logoi are not something that a biologist or a geologist or an astronomer would discover, but they are rather the spiritual sense of creation originating in God, God's intention for created things and the goal to which they strive. Uh, so just sort of uh, go on a little bit then, sort of how does this relate to how we view nature and how does this relate to, in effect, a theology of, of nature. So between the two notions that I've, I've discussed, and first the, uh, the well, historically, uh, that of the theology of St. Maximus the Confessor with uh, the logoi of, of things related to the divine logos, and St. Gregory Palamas, uh, the distinction between uh, the divine essence, uh, unknowable, and the divine energies by which uh, God makes himself known in creation and through which we can experience God, these provide a very solid foundation for a robust theology of creation. So theology then, uh, sorry, creation then is not something that's out there that is given to humanity uh, to use or misuse in modern times most frequently, uh, but is rather a divine offering uh, to humanity, which we can then return uh, to God. Uh, so we can see uh, God's handiwork, his presence in creation uh, with the responsibility of caring and tending for creation, uh, just as Adam was uh, called upon to, to care for the Garden of Eden. We tend to sort of forget that aspect, but stuck away there in the Genesis account of Eden is God's command that Adam should uh, care for the garden. Mm. So in, in this sort of cosmic uh, vision, uh, all of creation uh, can then be a theophany. A theophany is a divine manifestation. And it should, it should be, it can be, it should be uh, an occasion for elevating our thoughts and our prayers to, to God. Uh, this is a, a spiritual movement that uh, Metropolitan Callistos Ware characterizes as through creation to the creator. Through creation to the creator. And this, in fact, is the title of uh, a well-known essay of his uh, on an orthodox vision uh, of creation and is the foundation, in effect, for uh, orthodox uh, action concerning uh, the environment and, and creation care which uh, is a very major theme of uh, ecumenical patriarch uh, Bartholomew, for which he is known as the Green Patriarch, in fact. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Paul. And um, I think you've answered my next question here. So if I, I was going to ask you about um, how did this and returning to Sophia and the wisdom of God and divine energies and so on help us to... to um, to return to this more sensible appreciation of God's creation, especially at this time, whenever we do see such ecological destruction and even ignorance of the rhythms of nature and of liturgical rhythms and our place in the cosmos. Is there any more of the practical application that you'd like to add to that? Because you did such a good job there. <laughs> well, I, I, no, as I said, I think the theological foundation uh, there is very solid. And in fact, um, in, in this area, 
theologians and uh, ecologists from uh, other Christian denominations will often look to orthodoxy for the kind of theological uh, foundation, a uh, religious foundation uh, for environmental uh, action. Now, I have to say that the theory is there, but orthodoxy itself has not always been so great at actually implementing that. Mm -hmm. uh, even in countries of orthodox tradition, it is a very, uh, a very subtle uh, theology, but it's uh, said it's a very uh, sound one. Uh, so I think there is a bit of a gap there to fill between a theology that is very good and very profound and the actual implementation of what that means in practice and particularly in terms of uh, when it comes to legislation and actual actions. To, to, to care for uh, the environment. And we're sort of seeing this kind of uh, debate uh, today in, in, in society. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Paul. And then um, what I think is most important about orthodoxy in your work is the balance that, between that cosmic vision and um, emphasis on persons and how they interrelate. So I just want to ask you um, as penultimate question. So what does an orthodox understanding of personhood really sound like then? And what are some of the limitations maybe of personalist theology as it's developed then? Well, this is really going into what is probably the second most important uh, theme in modern Orthodox uh, theology, which is the uh, theology of the human person. Um, again, its, its origins can be found in the Russian religious Renaissance uh, when uh, the Christian philosophers and theologians uh, in late Imperial Russia were reacting to the impersonalist philosophies of the 19th century. Uh, these philosophies sought to denigrate the value of uh, individual human existence and instead uh, elevated particular aspects of human existence uh, to be the sort of supreme values. Uh, in particular, this is uh, evident in, in Marxism uh, where social class and economic relations were considered to be the, the supreme uh, values for, for humanity and uh, the basis uh, for, uh, in effect, uh, the restructuring of, of society. And this is part of the debate on what is the future of Russia and its ultimate resolution uh, in the Russian uh, Revolution and the installation of, of communism. So, the 20th century, in fact, saw this kind of thinking carried to, to great excess, uh, especially, as I said, in communism and the Soviet Union and in the communist uh, bloc countries of Eastern Europe uh, after World War II, uh, but also a slightly different perspective uh, in Nazism uh, in, in Germany, uh, with all of the horrible consequences that we know. So the individual person in both cases uh, is really of, of no value. Uh, only in the, in the one hand, on one hand, uh, only the social and economic uh, relations and, and classes are important. And on the other hand, in Nazism, uh, only ethnic affiliation, uh, being German or non-German, is important. Everything else, that other characteristics that a human might have are becoming irrelevant. So these and other uh, related ideologies take a very partial or limited view of human existence. So the Christian uh, thinkers of the Russian religious Renaissance and their successors uh, in neopatristic theology uh, reacted to this type of thinking by stressing the value of the human person. Um, and here we have to sort of go back a little bit in uh, the history of, of Christian thought uh, in ancient Christian thinking, the category of person uh, was applied to the three divine persons of the Trinity uh, as a way of reconciling or, or trying to grasp uh, how God can be one and three at the same time. And this is one of the, really the foundation of, of Christianity is, is the Trinity uh, and uh, Christ as a as a member of, of the Trinity and his incarnation. So it's really the foundation of Christianity. But you know, God is one and how can he be three? 
and yet still be one. And so the, this was a, the basic sort of philosophical theological problem uh, of the early centuries of the church was, was how to deal with uh, these, these two notions that seemed to be contradictory. Uh, and uh, in the fourth century, then thinking uh, congealed, uh, to distinguish between the divine essence and the divine persons. So the divine essence, yes, is, is one. There is one God uh, with one divine essence or nature. But there are three divine persons, each of whom is distinct from the other, is unique, and yet they are united with the other persons uh, in a bond of, uh, of mutual love. So the Orthodox uh, personalists, beginning uh, with, uh, with the Russians, uh, applied this uh, framework uh, from divine existence to human existence. So humans share the same divine essence, uh, human essence or nature, but are many distinct and unique persons. Uh, so the category of person then was extended from divine existence to human existence. Um, so in this case, uh, the, this theology uh, is uh, derived from the more traditional uh, theology of human existence, which is founded on the notion of a divine image. Well, this, of course, comes from the Genesis account of, of creation of, uh, of humanity, where uh, it said that God created uh, humans in a divine uh, image and likeness. Um, so the personalists considered that a key aspect of the divine image in humanity is this notion of existence as persons. Um, as the Greek philosopher and theologian Christos Yanaras says, uh, humans have a personal mode of existence, just as the Trinity does. And this is the sort of aspect uh, of, uh, uh, of the divine image uh, that is considered to be uh, an important one, not the only one, but the, an important one, and the one that is most relevant for this particular debate. So. From this uh, notion, uh, then, uh, the personalists and, and, and their successors in modern times uh, then argue that each person is uh, unique and irreplaceable uh, and hence of infinite value. So this was a very strong affirmation uh, against impersonalist philosophies uh, and philosophies as I said, such as Marxism or Nazism, which would take only one aspect of human existence and consider that, that was the most important one. So it was a Christian uh, response um, based on patristic notions, but applying it in a modern context. And I think this was, as I mentioned earlier, the, this type of thinking uh, began in the Russian religious Renaissance, but was carried forward into neopatristic theology with a great deal of consistency. Now it went a little bit further in neopatristic theology, but the foundations uh, are in uh, the thinking of the Russian religious Renaissance. So there's a continuity there. I refer to it as the golden thread that one can trace through a number of key individuals uh, who clearly learned from each other as time went on uh, and picked up this notion and further developed it. It, it said it is uh, one of the major, most important themes of uh, contemporary Orthodox thought. Mm, marvelous, thank you, Paul. And then just the last question today, where can anyone listening or watching find out more about you and your work just finally? Well, uh, I have lots of publications. You, we've been talking about uh, my book, uh, here it is, uh, Modern Orthodox Theology. Um, so almost everything I've, I've spoken about can be found in there, although in, in some areas, my, my thinking, my 
research and writing has gone beyond what's what's in the book already. Uh, but uh, there is also uh, a website um, where a lot of my publications are available, particularly uh, articles that have been published uh, in recent years in various uh, academic and non-academic journals. Uh, and this academic, this website is called academia.edu. That's academia, A-C-A-D-E-M-I-A.edu. So if you want to find that, you enter academia.edu and just put my name, Paul Ladusser, and you will find my page within uh, this, uh, this very vast uh, website uh, with uh, my publications. And, uh, and in fact, there's a full bibliography there as well. Mm, brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul, and God bless you. Nobody.